if all we're going to do is be like the other 59 reps in the market and try to come up with a more artful way of telling you we're cheaper than the other guys, then I'm wasting my time. What we're trying to achieve is to help what has been touted as a smart grid become intelligent. Because right now it's not. In order for a smart grid to be smart, there has to be interactivity. This is Energy Cast, and I'm Jay Downhower. Today we're talking about reaching the true potential of deregulated energy. This year marks the 20th anniversary of deregulated electric markets in Texas. My guest is a true pioneer in the space, and he's one of the first to admit that the market is still working to reach its true promise. For those who are not familiar, Texas and a handful of other states allow its people to competitively shop for their electricity plants. You get power, same as anywhere else, but the companies applying the bill is up to you. In many ways, this choice can be dawning. I went to the state-sponsored website, powertochoose.com, and entered my old zip code in Fort Worth. It turned up no fewer than 102 options, between 13 and 24 cents per kilowatt. You might be wondering why someone would need over a 100 choices packed within a dime of each other. That's one of the benefits and criticisms of plans like these. Read the fine print and the lowest rate may rise during weekends. Or maybe it's good for the first three months of a five-year contract. My guess says the state has worked to weed out some of these shenanigans, but they're still out there. First off, he says the true promise of a deregulated market isn't always achieving the lowest price. Here in North Carolina, where we only have Duke Energy, my rate is seven cents versus that 13 cents in Texas. Rather, my guess says competitive deregulated markets should be delivering on innovation. And after two decades in the sector, he believes his latest adventure will deliver on true customer control. My guest today is Don Whaley, president of Ohm Connect Energy, a retail electric provider based in California. Don has a long track record back in the Lone Star State. He was president of Direct Energy, a giant in the sector in the early 2000s. Ohm Connect started out as a home energy management tech company specializing in demand response. We last discussed demand response back in episode 131, but Ohm Connect wanted to merge their customer friendly app with a retail electric provider model. What you have is an app that gives its customers real-time opportunities to help reduce demand on the Texas grid. For doing so, customers are awarded points called watts, which they can redeem in some clever ways. It's packaged in a cute way, but participating in demand response programs in Texas could help reduce the number of extra power plants that have to come online, for instance. Now, I get pitched guests like this a lot. Most are run-of-the-mill REPs, but I was drawn to Own Connect because of the app and Don's history in the industry, and I take full advantage of him, <laughs> getting his opinions on everything from nuclear power plants in Texas to last year's winter storm, and even the 2007 TXU buyout. Don was a vice president at TXU for a few years there. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Don Whaley. Don Whaley, president of OwnConnect Energy. And Don, looking through your background, you've done so many things. You were founder and former president of Direct Energy, for one. That's one of the household names you've worked for. How is OwnConnect different 
from, say, direct and some of the other retail energy providers? That's my favorite question to answer. And so I appreciate you starting there. Direct Energy, when I started it in Texas, was one of the early movers. We were here when the market opened in 02. At that time, there was a handful of incumbents, the Reliance, the TXU, CPLWT. Of course, we acquired them, so we became part of that handful. But the market opened, it confused the customers because, as fate would have it, there was a budget crisis. So the PUC opened the market and ran out of money to explain it to consumers. It was a rough start. And at that point, the main thing anyone was trying to achieve was attract customers and the way they attracted them was by promising the lowest price. But the promise of deregulation, as one of the PUC commissioners once pointed out to me, was not necessarily that prices will always be cheapest, but that you'll come away with innovation. There will be competition and entrepreneurial drive will drive beneficial change that delivers value rather than simply price. But in the 20 years that this market has been open, no one has ever delivered on that promise. And that's why when OwnConnect approached me, they are a tech firm, Silicon Valley based, that has delivered great demand response capabilities to the state of California. But they wanted to get into a merchant role, into the traditional retail electric provider role as another iteration for how they could deploy this technology they've developed. And it got me excited because I thought after 20 years of waiting for innovation, I could actually be the guy who was able to introduce it to the market. So that is how it's different. We're not different in that we perform the same thing. We provide electricity to our customers, but the difference is we empower those customers customers with the tools and the information to where they can actively reduce the cost of their electricity on an annual basis and benefit the grid at the same time. Okay, you're going to have to explain. So the Public Utility Commission of Texas, when they first rolled out deregulation and the idea of how retail electric providers works, they were going to budget for something to explain how this works to Texans and they didn't do it? Yes. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What happened is that was in 2002, energy prices had fallen. So the state coffers of Texas were a little pinched and they cut the budget for the educational programs around deregulating. So a lot of customers, simple things like people didn't switch away from Reliant because the urban myth was, and I'm just picking on them because I live in Houston, but they were the incumbent. If you switched away from Reliant and the power went off, well, somehow you were put further down in the queue to get the power turned back on. Something as simple as reliability remained the function of the wires companies, not the retailer. And people didn't know that. And so that had a very chilling effect, as you might imagine, on the early days of competition because people were afraid that they'd be number three in the queue to get their power turned on the next time there was a lightning storm. Sure. And look, I want to also get into this idea of you give choice to customers on how they want to buy their power. And I've noticed a few times, for instance, whenever I go and shop for, say, a sofa, if there's just too much choice, I sometimes freak out a little bit. <laughs> it's easier sometimes maybe to have five choices. So right. how do you keep it simple for customers who might not be experts in all of this? Because people will sometimes come to these homes door to door, shelling for direct energy or relying or whoever. And there's a lot of offerings there. Most people aren't experts in this sort of thing. That is probably the most gracious way you could probably describe it. They're not experts in it. And what's fascinating about it is the number of choices has exploded since the market opened. As I mentioned, when we first opened the market, there was direct energy. There was JEXA came in pretty close after. There was a handful, maybe call it 10 when you count all the incumbents. On any given day, there's 60 different retail electric providers offering three or four products apiece. The state of Texas has a website 
website where you can post your offerings. It's called The Power to Choose. More correctly, it should be called The Power to Confuse for exactly the reasons you were describing. You can hit that information overload to the point where it's like looking at a list of to-dos that's so long that you can't possibly imagine finishing it so you never start. It is that phenomenon that is our greatest challenge. If all we're going to do is be like the other 59 reps in the market and try to come up with a more artful way of telling you we're cheaper than the other guys, then I'm wasting my time. What we're trying to achieve is to help what has been touted as a smart grid become intelligent. Because right now it's not. In order for a smart grid to be smart, there has to be interactivity. And as you have more and more solar and wind, which are non-dispatchable resources that are non-responsive resources coming in to the market here in Texas, you have to have one end of the equation responding to variations in load. We can't ramp up wind and we can't ramp up solar. So we have to then put that onus on the load, the load that becomes responsive to non-responsive generation. And that's just the changing paradigm in Texas and across the country. Renewable energy is here to stay as it should be. Prices have continued to come down. And so we're going to continually see it find its way more and more and more into just the economic dispatch order. And as a result, we have to have flexibility on the load side to keep the system in balance until ultimately batteries become reasonably cost effective. But that's from everything I've seen still a day or two on. Yeah. One more question with retail electric providers. It's been a while since I've been in Texas. Have there been ways to check against what you consider maybe predatory plans where, okay, you get three cents a kilowatt and then it jumps up to 30? Are there ways to maybe regulate against that? That's a great question. And predatory, that's an accurate description. There are some pretty slippery individuals that have been in this market. And as is always the case, they've given the market a black eye. But there was a trend I mentioned the power to choose. And the way the power to choose ranks offers is the lowest offer based on 1,000 kilowatt hours of usage in a month. And they do 500, 1,000, and 2,000, but they rank it based on 1,000. Several years ago, people started getting very clever in how they would design the offers to consumers to where that 1,000 kilowatt hour metric was very, very, very low. I've seen it as low as one cent per kilowatt hour all in. That's with distribution charges and everything. But the problem is, if you look to the right or to the left, to the 500 to 2,000, it would be 14 on one side and 17 on the other. They were giving you volumetric credit. If you used X kilowatt hours in a month, they would give you a credit of X dollars. And the sole purpose of that was to mislead customers into believing that what they were signing up for was one cent, two cents, some ridiculously low price. What the Public Utility Commission, after a fairly good outcry from both the consumers and from the reputable retailers out there, what they've done is they've now put a filter in. It shows you the rate plans without those gimmicks. We were calling it bullseye marketing. I was actually going to launch, I was running a rep at one time, and we thought about calling it lotto power, where every month we would draw a usage amount. And if that happened to be your exact usage, you got your power for free. Otherwise, you paid some reasonable rate. But that gimmickiness, again, the only innovation we've had in the state in 20 years is how can we say to you that our cost is the best price out there? Because price has been the sole determinant of who people have chosen. We're trying to change that. Okay, well, enough pitter-patter. Let's get into Ohm Connect. Tell me about your offering from what it looks like. You have an app that allows customers a lot of control over their power. Take us through how that works. It's really neat. It's really well done. The platform has been developed over the last seven years in California. And what we have done in Texas is every retailer in Texas has to stand up their own billing and enrollment, the heart of their business, where we 
enroll customers, we calculate their usage, we calculate their bills, we manage their payment performance. And that's standard. That's just table stakes. But what we've taken the next step is we have taken this platform that you alluded to, our DR platform, demand response platform, and bolted it on. When prices are spiking, when demand is spiking, when the grid is under strain, we send in the day ahead market, when we see where prices are going to bid up, we'll send out emails the day before and say, from the hour of six o'clock to seven o'clock tomorrow, reduce your usage and we'll pay you to do it. And we do. We set a baseline that's a 10-day rolling average of your consumption for every interval of the day. And so for six to seven, we know what your historic average is for six to seven for the last 10 days. And we set that as the bar. And to the extent you reduce below that, we pay you and we pay you handsomely against that reduction. But the other cool part about it is because they've been developing connectivity to virtually every smart device out there. I mean, we can do Nest, we can do Ecobee, we can do Emerson, any smart plug you can think of, the Tesla Powerwall, anything that has Wi-Fi connectivity and can be controlled remotely, we can control. So we are literally device agnostic. People say that, but we truly are. So if you will then connect a device, not just participate in the program, but connect a device, we'd give you bonuses for that. And the reason is we want to incentivize our customers to automate their performance rather than having to be home, running around, flipping off lights, telling the kids to turn off the TV. And that way we become a much more reliable resource to the market. But from our business model, it becomes a much more sustainable and predictable cash flow going forward because that's part of the financial model for Home Connect. And that's what makes us different. Reps in Texas, they live or die by the margin they earn off their customers from the power they sell. But we make margin, obviously, but we also participate in these price spikes and we share that revenue with our customers. So we pay ourselves and we pay our customers for good behavior. Yeah. And I think the question that probably comes to mind with something like that, this whole idea that you're nuts about energy stuff, I am too. What about normal people? <laughs> you know, I think there's two kinds of people out there. There's ham radio operators, right, who really like to get down into the nuts and bolts. And then there's people who just have like an Apple device, right? And right. how have you been able with something like this, where you can get so detailed with how power is being consumed at your homes, how do you make that user friendly for people who maybe are like, hey, I get it. I want to get the lowest price possible. I'm fine participating with this, but I don't want to be saying yes or no on an app all day long. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. And interestingly enough, that goes to the core of why everybody, all the utilities, regulated or otherwise across the U.S., the big ones particularly, have had some form of demand response forever, or at least they said that. But what none of them can say is they've ever been successful in deploying it. What Unconnect has done, and I understood the term, but I'd never seen it in action, is they've gamified it. They've made energy engaging, which to your point is quite a leap forward because when you participate in these programs, when you participate in these events, you earn watts, just like airline miles or just like bonus points on your credit card. The look and the feel of the app is engaging and you see your points balance, your watts balance start to accumulate. And then you see the ways that you can utilize those watts and you recognize that what you're doing is generating meaningful additional value because you go to our reward section and you can buy sweepstakes tickets. One point we gave away a dream kitchen. You can have free electricity 
electricity for a year. You can donate to charities that are part of our app. You can buy stuff. You can buy smart devices for your home. You can buy own connect novelty items, which I don't know if they're a particularly big seller, but it's an option. But most importantly, you can cash it in for an Amazon gift card. You can request that we just send you the money via PayPal. And in Texas, because we bill you for electricity, you can click on a button and reduce your electric bill using your watts. It's a platform that is naturally engaging to the people who would otherwise think, oh, you want to talk about energy? Well, I want to change the channel. Because you're right. It's not an exciting subject. It's not something that people wake up in the morning going, I need to get the oil changed, you change my electric providers. It's just not the way we think. But the gamification of the Own Connect app has shifted that to where people do engage. And the best example I can give you is we're just getting up and we're just getting running. We got active in the market at the start of this year. A lot of the delay was due to that integration of our demand response platform with our billing platform, which is there's a lot of wiring that needed to go on, if you will. So we started marketing through Power to Choose. And Power to Choose has historically been where people go to find the very cheapest price and they don't care. They're the people you're describing. I just want to get my bill. I want it to be low and I want to be left alone. At the outset, we had virtually zero participation from the customer signing up through Power to Choose. At this point, three and a bit months into it, we're seeing regular participation from these people where we were at zero that are now at 65%. So we're doing something right and people are getting it. A lot of folks who I imagine would be as engaged as you're talking about would also maybe have some rooftop solar, maybe even a battery backup at home. How does that integrate with Home Connect and the device? Does it make a difference? Do you see something different on your app if you have those things? You won't see anything different on your app today, but you're reading out of our playbook because we want people who are engaged, who are trying to help move toward a decarbonized environment. So people with rooftop solar, people with batteries are clearly in that camp where we can really help enhance the economics of their decision is if we gave them, right now we just do straight one price fits all 24 hours a day for a defined term. If we evolve and develop a time of use net metering product, which we're in the process of doing, that means that customers with solar, we would charge them 50% more during the day when their solar units are producing and obviously 50% less at night because that's when they're recharging. And so we'll have people who by virtue of their investment will be able to extract more value from that investment, particularly with batteries. Batteries are a little tough to amortize these days. They're great to have, but people who are buying batteries for the home are doing so for resiliency, not for anything else. They're not doing it for the economic decision. In Q2, probably certainly in Q3, they will. And then we're going to start marketing to that segment because as you would expect, they're going to be much more energy savvy and much more technically savvy, and they should get what we're doing right out of the box. Time of use was the next thing I was going to ask about, and you're already working on that, but it's not out there yet. What, what was one of the biggest challenges about finding ways to bill a customer for time of use? Because that's a really interesting idea and really has, I think, consumers thinking a lot like a power producer, right? I mean, you're consuming during off-peak times of the day and you're hopefully trying to curb your use during peak times of the day, right? Right. No, exactly. The biggest challenge, I'm in the market where they solved the biggest problem, and that's we have advanced meters. We have meters that read both the inflow of power and the outflow of power and recorded every 15 minutes of every day. And if you didn't have that time of use would be novel to talk about, but impossible to implement. But I can see what the power that is flowing into your house on one channel on your meter. I can see the power that's flowing out of your house on another channel on your meter. And depending on how we structure the time of use, I can bill you 
and credits you for the inflow and the outflow. And I can then set up my billing for you based on when you're pulling from the grid. So if you never export back to the grid or if you just export enough to reduce your consumption, I can see the net power that was sent to your house by 15 minute interval and I can price your bill accordingly. If we didn't have smart meters, but here in Texas, for all intents and purposes, certainly in the competitive area, there is no residential customer without a smart meter. And so our billing system allows us to record that, track that, and build that based on exactly when you use your electricity. Well, let's talk about the non-competitive parts of the country. So I lived in Austin where it was regulated and then in Fort Worth was deregulated. So I've lived in both parts of Texas, but I currently live in North Carolina. I know that they flirted with deregulation in the late 90s, but ultimately North Carolina abandoned that idea. Do you think we'll ever see a resurgence in deregulation around the country? It just seems like whoever deregulated stayed that way and it's been that way for the last 20 years or so. I keep hoping that we'll head that direction, but that hope has faded quite a lot over the years. I think part of the problem is, now I know it's hard to imagine, but sometimes the news agencies don't get the story right. And a lot of areas where competition has not performed as well as it has in Texas, it has been the market design, it has been the greed of the participants, it's been all the nefarious activities of everyone in it, other than the regulators who set it up, that caused it. And it has scared a lot of people who might otherwise have explored it, scared them away because it's a political third rail. And if you do something like that, it's a pretty big commitment. It's hard to undo. And if it doesn't play out well, people are going to remember whose idea it was. So I think that that coupled with the rising tide of the need for decarbonizing, and these are the types of things that tend to be done at large scale. And having that one fully integrated utility that's subject to oversight and regulation from some government agency to where the government has a hand in the sculpting of the future of the market and the direction we're going. I think that opening up markets to where capitalism, free enterprise is determining that direction. I just think that the days in which in an environment that would nurture that, I think they're fading fast. So I think that where you have competition is where you're going to have competition because it's hard to put that genie back in the bottle. And where you don't, I would be fairly surprised to see an outbreak of competitive markets across the country where once I thought we would. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's a little bit different than it was 20 years ago is all this talk about microgrids and distributed generation, at least at this level. Maybe this is me thinking creatively about this, even if you don't technically deregulate in some areas. Do you think that microgrids and distributed generation offer a chance to give customers something akin to what people who are in deregulated markets might have? Is that segmented, right? Certainly. I do. I think one of the things that's come out of the pandemic is probably one of the greatest population shifts this country has seen since the Great Depression. They call it the Great Retirement now. People deciding that now is the time to check out of the work market. But they've also been a big push to check out of urban areas. It's amazing the demand for rural land. Everybody wants their little piece of it. And so as the population shifts and as you start to have concentration in new areas, I think those are the opportunities that will lend themselves to the development of these microgrids you're talking about. You can move out to certain parts of Texas and there's not a power line anywhere in sight. What are you going to do? You're going to have to provide for yourself. And the same is true of various rural regions across the country. I think that the opportunities for clever developers, we've always heard about planned communities. Well, that's just another part of the plan so that you can provide solar, you can provide high efficiency natural gas, you can have battery backup, you can do a mix of the technologies that are at the fore of where we're heading and you pack 
package that all up in your own little distribution grid. And I think that those are going to be the areas where you have a choice or you can pick from the menu of, do I want 100% green or do I want this, that, or the other? So you'll have some choice in what you buy and how you meet your energy needs. That's a ways off, but I think that that's probably the area in which we're going to see more competition than simply opening up some deregulated utility or some regulated utilities marketplace and have a free-for-all all over again. I just don't see that happening. Sure. Now, Don, look, when people hear about Texas and energy, they still talk about the outages from 2021. Now, <laughs> and I don't think that's fair, exactly, because I think that was a once-in-a-generation event. We didn't have that same thing happen this winter, right? But what right. do you think that teaches us about a grid like ERCOT? Well, I think it teaches me less about the grid like ERCOT. And the point there, I assume, is this lack of interconnectivity with the other NERC regions that surround it. And by the way, that was done by design. ERCOT has never interconnected with other electric regions simply because we didn't want to be regulated by FERC. We don't want federal regulation, and we've achieved that. And I think that that motivation is still very much alive in the minds of Texans. So would we have been better off, worse off, indifferent if we were connected to certain? I don't know. But what people don't fully understand is the magnitude of generation that was lost and how quickly it was lost. We had to dump 25, 28 gigawatts of load in under a minute, or we would have lost ERCOT. We had a cascading effect that was about to get out of control. We don't have times in which you can say zero degrees, five days, and central Texas all in the same sentence and make any sense. But that's exactly what happened. And that was the reason that that was so different from normal winter events. Texas is a pretty big place. And when fronts move through, they tend to come in through the northwest and push down to the southeast so that you don't have the entire state almost instantly immersed in Arctic cold. But in this instance, from Amarillo to Brownsville, it was well below freezing, below zero in some instances. And it stayed that way for five days. But what wasn't widely reported was it wasn't the generators that failed. It was our fuel system, largely, that failed. When you have a natural gas combined cycle unit with no natural gas, it doesn't generate very efficiently. We had years ago converted a lot of mainline gas compression to electricity. And so you have this vicious circle. You lose generation, you lose compression, you lose pipe pressure. So you can't then generate more electricity. Because it was electrical, it got all the press. It got all the coverage. It was the grid's fault. But there was a number of things that happened but the first and foremost thing happened is you had a once in a generation, if not longer than that, event that hit a hot weather climate and caught us by surprise. We weren't ready for it. I have said time and again that I don't expect to live long enough to see a recurrence of an event like that. Not to say never, but we saw that again this winter. With all the hype and hyperbole that went into preparations for the coming winter, we didn't have it. And the grid performed perfectly. Yeah, I think it's kind of naturally a human response to when something happens like that. You want to prevent it from ever happening again. So now we're weatherizing wind turbines when they're never going to freeze again in their useful life, right? Right. <laughs> Keeping this retrospectives in Texas energy history thing going, I had one more question about TXU. I saw that you were the VP of TXU in the late 90s. I was on a communications team as a consultant for TXU during that buyout in 2007. I did a five-part series early in the run of this podcast. It's episode 10, if anybody wants to check it out, where I argued that the buyout was a watershed moment for coal, environmentalists, basically stakeholder capital, right, in these kinds of business decisions. What do you think the TXU buyout, that, that coal expansion at the time, and then the buyout being fueled so much by public pressure and you know, environmentalism and all that, what do you think that meant for the energy sector? It was disruptive, 
to say the least. You had an iconic company. TXU was the flagship electric utility in Texas pre-deregulation. And they have a lot of coal in their fleet. It's a pretty interesting negotiating ploy. They came in and proposed, I believe the number was 12, 1,000 plus megawatt mine mouth coal units that they were going to build as part of this acquisition, which was an absurd number. I don't think that there was the underlying demand to drive it, but they settled for three. They settled for 3,600 megawatts of mine mouth brand new coal generation. And I think were it not, you talk about a watershed for coal, I think it were it not for that acquisition, the formation of Energy Future Holdings, that it's unlikely that you would have had that level of coal addition to the mix. And what got them in trouble is their economics around those billion plus a piece, several billion, I think, units was a gas price projection at a much higher level than was ultimately realized shortly after they closed the deal. So they're breaking ground, they're building the plants, they're expecting to be dispatching against a six or $7 gas curve and gas prices got halved. And so the cash flows to support what was called the most heavily leveraged buyout and the energy sector became deficient. And that's why you had energy future holdings in bankruptcy. That's why you had the constant reformation of the various operating units. And it was disruptive to the market, to say the least. Now they finally come out the other end and Vistra has emerged and is stronger, I guess, for the experience. But I think you're right to talk about the fact that they was brilliant in the way they did it. They proposed 12 coal plants, which obviously had every environmental group in the world up and screaming. And they said, okay, well, we'll settle for three. And that looked like a great victory. But had they gone in one at a time and proposed each one of those, I don't think they'd have gotten any one of them built. So Cole won simply by a pretty ridiculous first ask and settling for something that was probably pretty close to what they expected to get in the outset. The TXU thing was so focused on coal. And one of the things I think I've said in the past was, I bet that if you were at the top floor of the TXU headquarters on a clear day in Dallas and had strong enough binoculars, you could probably see where they were fracking in Fort Worth. Oh, yeah, no doubt. But the thing about it is gas prices, when you're an electric provider, the last several years, it's been pretty easy to make money as a retail electric provider because we haven't had volatility in the underlying power price. Natural gas prices have kind of hummed along within a pretty tight band, and coal does the same thing. Coal, historically, has been pretty boring in the price range in which it trades. Now, here of late, with all the things going on in Ukraine and with the impact of Russian coal, that volatility has crept over into the flammable dirt market, as I like to call coal. But if you're a utility, and if you are an electric provider and not a utility, but if you're a generator and you want long-term, predictable, sustainable revenue and profitability, then the best way to go about ensuring that is having a stable underlying cost of fuel, because that's the biggest piece of your expense. Coal plants run flat out, long-term, long life. Coal prices are stabilized. And so you have a predictable cash flow and a forecastable or predictable forecast for revenue. And I think that's why even, as you say, you could look out the window and you could see the fracking going on in the gas fields. Just because it's there doesn't mean you have any idea what the price is going to be. And I think we're seeing that now. That'll disrupt your revenue forecast, I assure you. So coal's a much better bet when you're investing billions and you're looking for the predictable returns to pay for those investments. Getting back to REPs, I've interviewed some guests like Green Mountain Energy who offer renewable-only plans. But seriously, if you offered me a plan in Texas that would allow me to consume only nuclear power, I would do it. I'm a big fan of that. So why don't we see more plans like that in the offerings? 
Well, the toughest part is how do you prove it? What 99% of electricity consumers don't understand is buying 100% green, you can't follow the extension cord back to the windmill. The path of least resistance, it's a physical term, but it applies to electricity. That electricity is going to go along that path of least resistance. So it doesn't matter if power is generated from a windmill, from a solar panel, from a battery, from a run-of-the-river generator or from a coal plant sitting on the outskirts of Houston, whichever source has the path to your home of least resistance is where your power is going to come from. The way they make it green is they go out and they buy renewable energy credits. So however much you consume in a year, I'm going to go buy renewable energy credits, which are just stripped away renewable attributes from wind and solar, well, in Texas, wind, and slap them on your bill and abracadabra, your brown power is now green. You have no way of tagging nuclear. There aren't nuclear energy credits out there. So to say I'm going to only source my power from South Texas nuclear or Comanche P, you can't do it. There's no way to make that statement accurate. So it's only through the renewable energy credit system that you can go out and buy certified and then retire them against your load that you can make the claim that we're 100% green. Sure. And I think this leads into a panel of three lobbyists about two months ago. One of them was there in Austin, and we were talking about how to keep the nuclear fleet safe, right? And I think one of the things that came up was with all the benefits of a deregulated market like Texas, nuclear is having, I think, kind of a hard time because sometimes you're competing against renewable energy where it's almost nothing, right? And so I assume you're for nuclear and think that it probably has a place, but how do you protect something like nuclear, which is baseload and carbon-free and everything in a deregulated market where it could be competing with renewables that are fetching a price of zero? No, absolutely. If we go back to your question about do I see competition popping up like daisies across the country, I don't think so. You can't protect nuclear generation in a market like Texas, where it's price-driven on the consumer side, it's price-driven on the generation side. There is no penalty for solar not showing up. There is no penalty for wind not showing up, other than the economic detriment to the investor. The thing that makes nuclear so attractive is... It is dispatchable. It runs forever. Its marginal cost is very, very low, and it is an absolute zero emission deal. If we want to get to a carbon-free environment more quickly than we would if we have this intermittent reliance on fossil-based generation, nuclear is the answer because we've got, what, 42% of Texas now is renewable, which means it's non-dispatchable, which means it's intermittent, which means prices go to $1,500 when the wind doesn't blow in West Texas. That's hard for consumers to absorb. But if we have a vertically integrated utility that builds their resource plan, vets it with their regulators, gets approval to spend those dollars and recover those dollars through a structured rate, that's the only environment in which nuclear has any chance of a resurgence because left to a fully open market that prices the ultimate determinant, you're never going to have anybody plunk down the billions of dollars that would be associated with building a new nuclear plant because there's just too much risk, particularly in Texas. Texas doesn't even have capacity payments and thank God for that, but they don't have capacity payments. When you build it, the only way you're going to ever recover your cost of investment 
is one megawatt hour at a time. And that's a long road when you're spending $3 billion. So coming back to Ohm Connect, say it becomes popular beyond your wildest dreams and so many Texans are incorporating it and using it and really taking an active role in their energy use. What kind of impact do you think that could make ultimately on the grid to make it more resilient and reliable? I mean, do you see a situation where you're not having to call on peakers and on massive scale? Where do you see the ultimate benefit there? You just described the vision. One of my favorite examples is we think about our air conditioner, or if you happen to have a pool pump, the dryer, the stove. You think about the things in your homes that are just the real energy hogs. We can turn your thermostat up five degrees, and so we can affect your air conditioner. We'd have to hardwire something for your pool. Nobody's going to let us do that. They're certainly not going to let us hardwire anything for a stove, and there aren't any Wi-Fi-enabled 220-volt plugs. So kind of all the big offenders out there are more or less out of bounds. But it's really funny that small things in large numbers add up to a meaningful sum. If you look at your refrigerator, it's about 150 watts per hour. So if you look at the regulated part of Texas, there are 6 million deregulated meters. And if you assume in Texas that on average, there's two refrigerators in every home, that's 12 million refrigerators. And 12 million times 150 gets you to about 1.8 gigawatts of load you can control with a smart plug. Call it 10 bucks per plug to get into the consumer's hand. Every refrigerator in Texas is plugged into that. I could build 1.8 gigs of dispatchable load for $120 million. And the beautiful thing about that is that refrigerators are durable load. And by that, most homes in Texas aren't insulated nearly as well as they should be. You can turn off your AC for an hour on a hot August day, you're going to either be listening to phone calls from unhappy customers or they're going to be overriding your demand response event. Whereas a refrigerator, you can turn it off and you can leave it off for several hours as long as people aren't opening it to check on the light to see if it's back on without any harm to the contents. So you have potentially a very large load of reasonable duration curve that could be put in place very quickly at a very low cost. So the dream state would be not the chicken in every pot and car in every garage, an ohm plug on every refrigerator in the competitive part of Texas, and we've got meaningful load. At that point, 1.7 gigs of dispatchable duration is going to shut a lot of peakers down where we won't need them anymore, and it's 100% carbon free. That's really excited. I love it how you broke it down by the number of refrigerators in Texas. <laughs> I was going to call them beer boxes because that's pretty much what half of them are. But still, there's going to be a number of refrigerators. <laughs> Deep freeze. Yep. All right, Don Whaley, Ohm Connect Energy, thank you so much for your time. Oh, absolutely. It's my pleasure being here. Energy is a topic I love, and I enjoy having the opportunity to talk about it with you. That was Don Whaley, president of OwnConnect Energy, a California-based demand response company now operating in Texas. I want to thank Don for his time, as well as Alexandra Pony at Pony Communications for setting this up. You can find plenty of pictures for this episode on energy-cast.com, as well as on Instagram and Parler at Host Energy and Twitter at Host Energy Cast. All guests are sent the wrong completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 137. Be sure to join us next week when we ease over the state line of Louisiana, where they are quietly building reputation as a leader in carbon capture and storage. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time.